Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. some incredible nuggets of pure gold in this episode. You will definitely want to have a pen and paper handy. Joining me today is Dr. John Dole, cut flower researcher and professor at North Carolina State University. As you'll hear in this episode, John has been immersed in flowers since he was just eight years old, planting gladiolias at a neighbor's farm in Michigan. Over the decades, he's been a keystone leader in the floral industry, serving farmers and florists alike with his valuable research projects. John is well known for his work with the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, which is where I met him years ago. My friendship with John is an example of how priceless a membership in the association can be. If you are not already a member of the ASCFG and you're a serious flower farmer, you'll want to head to the show notes right now and get the link to join. While John and I were talking here for the podcast, I was reminded how much I have learned over the years from him and others who have generously shared their knowledge through the ASCFG. It's incredible what resources are available through that organization. For flower farmers, John, along with his posse of graduate students, has done a lot of studies on what we call post-harvest handling of cut flowers. Basically, what are the best practices growers can implement after harvesting to get the longest face life out of their crops? You can be the most dynamite of growers, but if you don't know how to handle your flowers after they're picked, you won't have happy customers or a sustainable business. So while this can feel like a bit of a snoozy topic, it is so absolutely critical to the work that we do. In this episode, John and I talk about a handful of key crops and how to handle them after harvest. You are going to be shocked, I mean shocked, by what he has to say about storing peonies and tulips. And he shares production tips for Icelandic poppies and fragrant stock. We also go down a rabbit hole about water quality and flower food. To be honest, I hadn't planned to pick John's brain about those, but I am so glad the topic came up because it was really informative. I've long been anxious about using flower food and holding solutions because there are no organic certified options on the market. And if you're a certified organic grower, you're not allowed to use them. I assumed they were full of harsh chemicals that I wouldn't want to dump out into my farm's ecosystem. John shed some light on this subject, and I think you'll find it reassuring to hear. Make sure to check out the show notes on this episode, as there will be several useful links there to John's research and books. If you've not made use of the show notes here on No-Till Flowers, you are missing out on a great resource. I always load up the show notes with useful follow-up links and info that you can access easily in the future without having to listen to the whole episode again. You can access the show notes by tapping on the episode title wherever you're listening to it, which should open up the episode-specific view. Now scroll down past the little play arrow button thingy, (laughs) and you should see lots of text down there. These are the show notes. 
I highly recommend checking them out after each episode to get even more value out of no-till flowers. As always, a big shout out to members of the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network, or what we call Ruffin for short. Ruffin members have chipped in to pay for the production of this podcast. If you feel like you learn a lot from no-till flowers and you want to see me make more content in the seasons to come, please join Ruffin. It's just $20 a year, and in addition to getting more podcasts in the future, you'll get access to lots of detailed articles, live Q&As, online courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded peeps. All right, with that, let's jump into this enthusiastic conversation with Dr. John Dole of North Carolina State University. Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. John Dole, who has been a mentor and a friend for me for many years now as a flower farmer. I think you've been around since I started, John. I don't know. I mean, I don't remember a time it's been without a long you. Time. Many, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. many years. <laughs> but our industry is so fortunate to have you because you are this encyclopedia of knowledge, both about plants and, and cut flowers, but also about the industry. And you just have this historical sort of data set that nobody else has. So. <laughs> So I wanted to get you on the show today so we could, I don't know, pick out a little bit of, of what's in that noggin of yours. So thanks for joining me. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think you just did a very nice way of saying I'm old. Ah, uh, no, <laughs> you are wise and informed. <laughs> okay, well then I will say I'm old. <laughs> you're, you're a gracious elder among our tribe. <laughs> there you go. No, you're only as old as you think. So um well, let, let's just start. I know you so well, and lots of people in industry know you so well, but could you tell those people who aren't familiar with you who you are, where you are, how long you've been doing this, and how you got here? Big big picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm currently on faculty at North Carolina State University, and I've been here since 2000. Uh, prior to that, I was at Oklahoma State University for 11 years. Um, and then prior to that, um, I got my graduate work from, or my PhD from the University of Minnesota. Um, I got my bachelor's degree from Michigan State. Uh, in between there, I worked in California at Paul Ecke Ranch, which is poinsettias. Uh, my PhD was on poinsettias. Um, fascinating plant, just love it. Um, we also, as an aside, I did some work on poinsettias as cut flowers mm, and poinsettias a little uh yeah a little um uh, little known fact is that poinsettias actually started as a cut flower oh i didn't know that i knew you had helped kind of bring them you know into the cut flower industry but i didn't know they were originally a cut that's crazy they were they were a field grown cut in southern california before they became a pot of flower wow. well before either of us were born i might add <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, so the history of poinsettias is, is, is uh, pretty interesting. Wow, I should have um, I should have asked you on to talk about poinsettias. I didn't, but maybe we should <laughs> we should talk about that too. Wait, can you grow poinsettias can. from seed? This was a question somebody asked me recently, and I was like, I really don't know. <laughs> you can, but there's no particular reason why. Okay, right. um, poinsettias are not the best at setting seeds to begin with. If you look at a plant, you'll sometimes see the little seed pods come out of the 
the little flowers in yeah, the middle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they typically don't have very many seed. They're 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 shy at producing seed. Mm, so fair. even if you could, um, you it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be worthwhile much. They're primarily produced from cuttings. Okay, gotcha. Just thought I'd check on that one. But anyway, I interrupted that's your. A question. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's a good question. I haven't been asked that before. So that's a good one. Yeah, I think it, it was just a newer grower who had seen some cut poinsettias and um, was just curious about them, but didn't really have any concept of what they were like. And I was like, I don't I don't know. I would assume they were a cut um, like from cuttings, but I really right, didn't know. Right. So now now we know <laughs> officially. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I went to Michigan State because I grew up in West Michigan. Hmm which is an area with a lot of horticulture. Yeah, it is. Um, it's ironic that I didn't go to Michigan State for a horticulture degree initially, um, but I did find horticulture fairly quickly after I got there. Okay. Um, I did a, also a year at a community college. Hmm. You know, I know there's a lot of folks out there that go to a community college for various reasons. Yeah. And I am one of them. Yeah, <laughs> so was, I did. I did two years at a community college too. It was great. I just wanted to get a little additional education. Couldn't afford the the fancy pants places. So community college is exactly. awesome. <laughs> I had been admitted to Michigan State, but I literally didn't have the money to go that first mm -hmm, year. Mm -hmm. So I went to community college for first year and then yeah. went over to Michigan State. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Um, I grew up in an area with, uh, like I said, a lot of horticulture. So I grew up uh, picking strawberries for money in the summer and raspberries, apples. Um, that's, that's how I made money. Yeah. I worked for a uh, farm stand. The neighbor had a farm stand. So he did gladiolas. Oh. And I started helping him when I was just a tiny little kid. Um, I think around eight, if I, if, wow. if I remember correctly. And so, because, you know, eight-year-old kids are short yeah you're so, close to the ground <laughs> very close to the ground which makes all this cut flower stuff much easier yeah so um he would dig a trench with um with his plow mm. and then he would put flats of corns along it and then i would put them in the uh, in the trench mm -hmm. or he would pour them in the trench and then i would space them out and turn them right side up mm. and then he'd come back over them and you know fill them in and I also helped him with um, with cutting, uh, harvesting. Okay. This 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 um, goes back to before bedding plants were sold in cell packs. Oh. So he would take tomato seeds and sprinkle them over an open wooden flat, of, you know, yeah. substrate of some type. And then when somebody would come by, if they wanted four tomatoes, he would pull out of the mass of soil four tomatoes, wrap them in a piece of newspaper and sell them, hand them to them. Yeah. So that's bedding plants were done before, uh, before. That's cell amazing. Back. When I, that reminds me of when I was growing up, I, I lived in a very rural part of central Pennsylvania and there was a large Amish community there. So most of our bedding plants we would get from an Amish greenhouse, but also they didn't always use cell packs. They did, they did have some cell packs, but if you wanted something like pansies, they weren't in cell packs. They had just scattered seed on the ground outside oh, wow. and wow. you would just get a shovel full of pansies. Like that was it. That was how you got it. You got a little box and you got a shovel full of pansies. <laughs> to I this day, it. I it was it. great. And there was no plastic involved. So it was a cool <laughs> way. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> Very good. 
one other thing I will add is that I loved seed catalogs. Mm. You know, like like any yeah. any anybody into this stuff, you know. And I was particularly fascinated with dried flowers. You know, mm. the everlasting. Uh, for some reason, I thought those were just the coolest things. So I ordered all kinds of seed, and for about two years, I grew and dried straw flowers and acroclinum wow. and status, and then hung them up in our shed and then sold them to the local florist. So you were in this from the beginning. You were basically born to do flowers. <laughs> I was a nerd from the beginning. <laughs> yes, indeed. Perfect. And darn proud of it. <laughs> yes, amen to that, as we should all be. <laughs> so when did you know you wanted to like really study flowers instead of just grow them? Because it sounds like you had such a foundation for just going out and becoming a flower farmer instead of a researcher. What what was the right. trigger for that? Um, as a as a part time job at Michigan State, uh, one of the faculty hired me to help his graduate students with their research. Um, interestingly, the first project was actually poinsettias. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, you know, I, I liked it. Um, I did fairly well in the academic part of it. And so the professor who was Royal Hines um, said, you really should think about graduate school. Hmm. Um, and I did. And uh, as I neared, well, as I neared the end in my senior year, I checked out several graduate schools in various places around the U.S. And then after checking them out, I thought, you know, this is something I think I wanted to do. Hmm. I did not have a long term plan in terms of what I was going to do with it, per se, which is ironic because now I spend a lot of my time, you know, counseling, students. Right, coaching others to do it, <laughs> to be structured. <laughs> right. I knew by the end of each phase, I knew what I wanted to do for the next phase. Okay. And that turned out that that was good enough to get me moving along. Uh, so, yeah, I went to graduate school and loved it. Um, I still was very much interested in industry. Hmm. I'd been applying to uh, academic and industry jobs. Um, the academic one, which was at Oklahoma State University, was in some ways the first one that I got. So I was like, okay, I'll do this. Nice. And, and um, of course, from there... Just all on. snowballed. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have been really instrumental in different publications for cut flower growers and then also in just sort of shepherding the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers by being, um, what is your official title again? I forget. You have an official title. <laughs> Executive advisor. Ah, that is a very official title. <laughs> I know. I love it. It's so official. Not people aren't really sure what it means. Right, right. Which is good because then yeah. you know there's no expectations. You you can you can do anything <laughs> then. That's like a, sometimes I give my uh, my employees just the job job title, the associate, and then I can make them do anything, or or, or they could do anything if they decided. <laughs> so it's a lot less a lot less of a uh, pigeonhole title. But in any case, as uh, when I was on the board of the ASCFG, your leadership was uh, absolutely fundamental to the growth of the organization and the, you know, sort of continued blossoming of the organization. So without you, I don't think our industry would be nearly where it is today. And I humbly thank you. And with that in mind, I'd love to give people an idea of how today you're supporting 
cut flower, you know, particularly small American cut flower production, like what, what is your role? It's mostly research and understanding. Well, I won't tell everybody. You tell everybody. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I, I still very much do research. I had uh, the research has slowed a little bit. Um, I was in administration at the university here for a while. I am back in the faculty. And so that's giving me much more time. Um, in terms of local production, um, always been a big supporter. I love what we do in this industry. I love the breadth and depth of what we grow. You know, it's a just a most creative industry, a lot of creative people. Uh, bringing all kinds of things into the industry. Uh, we've done a, we've uh, co-managed along with Judy Lauschman mm -hmm. at the ASCFG, who has now been, who's now retired. And Steve Crone is the new executive director. And he's stepped right into the trial thing. Those are big uh, shoes to fill. <laughs> big shoes to fill, but he hasn't yeah. seemed to have missed a beat. So good, I think all, all the, you know, with those trials, uh, really helping uh, sort through all the new stuff. You know, I mentioned early on, I was big, you know, love seed catalogs. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff in there. there and is. as a grower, you really can't grow at all. You really uh, plus can't. You got to grow stuff you need to make money on. So yeah, the trials. Um, so we help folks sort out which ones really to uh, to start with in terms of new things. Yeah, those seed trials were super helpful to me over the years to know what was worth growing because you go through the seed catalog and you there's a million choices, seriously, a million choices. I just looked at GeoSeed catalog again today, trying to remember, like, do I want to add this or add that? And um, and I refer back to the seed trials a lot of times to be like, wait, was that cultivar really good or not? So, yeah, the, the ASCFG seed trials are spectacular for sure. Uh, that and then we also did we also do quite a bit of post harvest. So for those that do well, uh, we do kind of a general set of treatments, just four treatments to see what their base life is. And then for some of those, depending on the help and how many grad students I have, we've done you know really in depth work on some of the cut flowers to you know uh, provide just how they should be handled, mm -hmm. stored, treated, and all that sort of thing. Um, and that has all been on, you know, basically uh, domestic local cut flowers. Mm -hmm. We do work with roses, carnations, chrysanthemums. Those are um, projects. The industry in the United States includes both. Mm -hmm. You know, it includes a lot of imported flowers, as we all know. It includes an increasingly large amount of local flowers, which is great. Um, so over the years, we've had projects that have tried to help all parts of the industry. Uh, including the florists, the wholesalers, yeah. um, as well as yeah. the consumers. Oh, it's, it's it's been um, such a resource for everybody in in just floristry in general. I have a quick question that just popped into my head as you were talking. <laughs> um, I probably have asked you this before, but I forget your answer. The when when you're considering post harvest and handling of cut flowers. The water quality must have a huge impact, does it not? And can you like maybe briefly cover that for everybody listening? Because water is so different, whether you're in a municipality, if you're from a well, if you're, you know, just kind of, can you give us an overview of pH and, I don't know, minerals or anything like that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's really good. Um, 
Yeah, uh, pH is the most important component, mm. uh, generally low pH. And the pH that's optimum for cut flowers, for most cut flowers, is much lower than normal water. Ooh, that's tell. why we use the flower foods because mm -hmm. uh, they have an acidifier in them. Uh, that really helps reduce the pH. Uh, for those in some parts of the country, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I used to work in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, some parts of Oklahoma, the water was very high pH mm. and very high alkalinity. Those two, I want to talk just a little bit about mm. those two things. Uh, pH is is just the you know the the acidity or the basicity of the water. The alkalinity uh, refers to uh, like the potential limestone that's in the water as well. And so if you have a water that is uh, high pH and high alkalinity, then it's really hard to get that pH down. If you have a pH that's, or if you have water that has a high pH but low alkalinity, then it's much easier to get that water pH down. So that's a little bit of uh, detail there. So folks need to look at not just their pH, although pH is the most important, I will say. They need to look at their alkalinity. Hmm. So how much dissolved, um, in a sense, limestone. It's not quite limestone, but yeah. how much dissolved limestone is in the water. Wow. So um, for everybody who is currently listening and no doubt saying, thinking in their head, wait, how do I know if I have high alkalinity in my water? <laughs> do tell, John. <laughs> uh, send your water off for a sample. Now, most um, cooperative extension services can handle it. Hmm. If not, uh, just contact your supplier. You know, if you're working with Floralife, if you're working with Chrysal, they can go ahead and get your water sample. Oh. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, do um, they do that for free or is it like a paid service kind of thing? You know, that's a good question. I'm afraid I don't know. We, okay. uh, we, we actually have a pH analyzer, so we do it in-house. Okay. And then periodically, we'll send it to the lab because the state of North Carolina has a very good lab. Mm. Uh, we'll send it off to get the alkalinity tested there. But we do most of our pH testing okay. um, in-house. Whenever we do an experiment, we test the pH of the water because we have to record that uh, as part of the experimental protocol. Mm. Oh, that, I didn't know you had to. That's uh, that's great yes. data to have as the background for it. Definitely Im important context. If you didn't know what the water was, it could screw up everything, basically. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So uh, the other. Oh, sorry. Let me oh, jump yeah, in real yeah, quick. Yeah. Other is or is the salt content in mm. the water, which is. Um, recorded by electrical conductivity, EC. which everybody, just, yeah, exactly. Very good, very good. <laughs> um, EC is just how we call it. Um, what we went, what we did some specific testing on that. Um, and what we found was a bit interesting. We, we've been telling, well, I will confess, I have been telling <laughs> and other folks have been saying that the water should have very low EC. And we found that for certain flowers, lowest EC water is actually not the best. So water with just a little bit of salt in it, um, around 0.25 to 0.5. For those who you probably, there's listeners probably now pulling out their water test. Right now, <laughs> right. <is> our, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but then when salt levels get too high, then we start running into post-harvest issues. Okay. So there's a bit of a curve there okay. um, with 
no salt not being the best for some species and too much salt being a problem for just about everything. Okay. So follow-up questions. <laughs> um, so first let's do pH. You said, you know, you want the pH to be really, uh, really low for cut flower hold, like to hold cut flowers, not necessarily in the field for the record. We're talking about like you've cut the flower and it's in a bucket and it's hanging out and we yeah. want the best post-harvest, the best longevity for that cut stem. So what is, do you think the ideal, you probably know exactly what the ideal pH is for that water? <laughs> I'd like to see it at three to four. Wow. That is low. I was thinking five, Pretty, but okay. Yeah, All right. no. Okay. Um, right. You know, people's natural water supply um, you know, sometimes that can be uh, below six, you know, but for the most part, it's not going to be that mm -hmm. three to four. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a fairly nice line between vase life and pH with the higher the pH, the lower the vase life. Okay. Okay. And then another question about the salt content, the EC that I'm just curious about. Okay, so this is an anecdotal story here in Philadelphia where I am based. So in Philadelphia, okay. there's there's obviously municipal city water in Philadelphia. Right. And then fortunately for me at my farm, I'm actually on a well, which is okay. unusual for a farm in the city of Philadelphia. So I get incredible vase life out of my zinnias. But then farmers who are like a quarter mile down the street who are on municipal water from the city of Philadelphia, their zinnias don't last at all. So are zinnias by any chance that that EC level maybe, or that's just a pH thing? Any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, uh, the water could be playing a role. Uh, zinnias, like most flowers, um, as you increase the EC, it goes down. It'd have to be quite a difference mm, okay. um, for it to be that dramatic. Um, the pH, uh, it could be it could be a combination of both. For a dramatically difference, I, I, I'd be surprised if the water made a dramatic difference. Oh, but it does. For the record, there has been testing, <laughs> it, it, very very uh, informal testing. But I've had I've given water to this grower to okay. put, to put his zinnias in, and they did much better in my water. Oh, very good. Well, then, yeah, then I would look at it. Yeah. It probably is a combination of pH and EC. Yeah. Um, the other thing, zinnias are very prone to bacterial contamination mm -hmm. in water and buckets. Yeah. Um, it, one of the things also is that you could be doing just a really, really good job of keeping your buckets clean. Ooh, we do. I, I believe in the mantra that... Um, Gosh, was it Kay that said this one time? I, don't, I forget who who said it, but you should be able to drink out of your buckets. Like you That's yourself indeed. would take a drink out of that bucket. And I am a big believer in that. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of work that has shown that um, zinnias just are real sensitive. They're kind of a dirty flower in yeah. the sense that we got hairy stems and that traps, you know, little bits of debris and soil. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. My guess is that that also is part of the reason. 
Okay. And we also use at my farm. This was not meant to be a post-harvest conversation for the record, but now now that I'm in it, I can't help it. Um, the other thing I use at my farm a lot is the Gerber pills, the um, chlorine oh, tablets, yeah. CBBN. Yeah. Um, for those listening that don't know this product, it's available from Crisel. I don't know if other providers provide it. There's probably somebody else. I don't know. Um but it's a little tiny pill that looks like an aspirin, I always say. But it smells to high heaven like a pool because it's just full of chlorine. It's a, like a pool condensed into an aspirin. <laughs> and then you put one of those in your buckets after you've harvested. And it's, it's in my understanding, and John, you are the expert, so you should tell us. Actually, why don't you just tell us what uh, CBBN oh, no, does? Well, I was just going to say, what it does is it strips the bacteria. I think of it as like... This little like car wash for the stems that are in the bucket, and it's just kind of like taking all the dirt and the bacteria off of those dirty stems, like unzinnias or or becky or whatever, and it's just kind of like cleaning them off. And I, in my understanding, it only hangs out for seventy two hours. Like the, it evaporates out, the chlorine diminishes after seventy two hours. But it's a good way to get the bacterial count down in the water. Is that correct? Or you should change. That's me. exactly. It's okay. it's, uh, it's an antimicrobial. Okay. Okay. And so you know, any flower food has really three components uh, to it. Um, not all flower foods have all three, but you know, it's the um, acidifier to reduce the pH. It's an antimicrobial to re also uh, to reduce the bacteria, and uh, it's a carbohydrate, a sugar of some type. Now, like a hydration solution just has the first two, an antimicrobial and a uh, um, acidifier. What the, the pills are doing is it's an antimicrobial. And, you know, if you have good, clean water, um, many times that's, you know, good, clean water with a decent pH, like we were talking about, just adding those pills alone is all you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so, I don't use any holding solutions. Don't hate me. Don't hate me. <laughs> I don't use any. I'm get you on that one. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't use any of the other things, mostly because my my um, my farm is odd. Again, it's in the city, but it's not on the city grid, and so there's no sewer. There's no way to carry water away, and so I I have a regenerative farm, and I worry about dumping out any sort of chemicals just out into the soil, and I've never gotten a straight answer from anybody about exactly what is in holding solutions and if it could have a poor impact on, you know, aquatic life further. I live on my farm just above a stream, you know, stuff like that. So I've always been a little bit anxious about what is actually in holding solution? <laughs> is it going to kill stuff? <laughs> no, no, um, it, it is. It is the three things. It's the antimicrobial. It is the acidifier and it is the sugar. Um, I would encourage the sugar. Now we've, we've done a lot of testing of holding solutions for around 40 to 48 hours. And for most species, uh, it increases the vase life, okay. subsequent vase life. Um, yeah, you know, that the, I, I'm oversimplifying it and I don't mm -hmm. want people to think of what, what I'm gonna say next, I'm oversimplifying. It's pretty much the same stuff that's in soda. Okay. Because soda, if you look at a soda, not not the not the sugar free, but it's got sugar, it's got an acidifier, and it's got an antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in fact, if somebody were to accidentally drink dilute flour food, 
I would not be worried. Oh, okay, okay. That makes me feel better. It's <laughs> the first person I've heard feel feel that strongly about it. <laughs> yeah. Now I need to say that I have not drunk <laughs> knowingly flour food, so I'm not sure how it would taste. Mm. Um, Maybe like per- Sprite. It might taste like Sprite. <laughs> I kind of doubt that. Um, but now I'm thinking about it. I probably will try it just to, to see. And so then if it, uh, um, it, uh, it's not edible and I don't want anybody to think that, but yeah. it does have the same type of chemicals. Okay. Um, and most of those are, um, uh, environmental friendly. Okay. So for organic um, growers, I don't, I don't think organic, um, certification allows for flower foods. Do you know? Yeah. At the last it, uh, check. These are certified organic. This is something that the companies are working on. Okay. Okay. And that was why I've always had like a hesitation. I'm like, well, if you can't do it, then there must be something wrong with it. But you're saying there's not really sort of like that half-life, you know, it's not the same as like a pesticide that goes out into the environment and then lingers there for a long time afterwards. Correct. Okay. This isn't a whole different. Now, there's a couple of other caveats. There are a couple of flower foods that have silver ion Mm -hmm. in them. Not... Don't put that down the tree. At all. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. There are very strict regulations on silver. Um, there's a handful of others with different compounds in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're really talking about are the basic um, hydrator holding and consumer solutions. Yeah. You know, with uh, So we're not talking about some of these other things. Okay. Um, the silver, that has to be handled very careful. That stuff scares me. I've never, I've never used it because I just, it's like a heavy metal, right? I, I just, I'm it not comfortable with that. It <laughs> yeah. It's not a heavy metal band. It's a, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's where I would draw the line in terms of my comfortability mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with, with the flower foods. I will say for the record um, that I, you know, some of my research has been funded by the, you know, by Floralife and Chrysal. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I do find that the holding and consumer solutions to be very useful for most species. I will f- say, just for the record, the hydration solutions, um, m- the, the, the pills work pretty well. Um, some of the other ones, good clean water and getting them right into water quickly. Yeah is as good as using a commercial hydration solution. Okay, okay. Um, so it's, um, what I tell folks is, if you're not sure what to do, uh, the default is just to use plain water, good clean water mm-hmm. as your hydration. Mm-hmm. And then after they hydrate for a short amount of time, put them in a holding solution. That combination works for most flowers. Okay, okay. And what about quick dips since we're going down all the rabbit holes here? <laughs> we've, we've, you know, we, we deal with a lot of different species. So we have to keep the number of flower foods we use to mm. a minimum. So we have used quick, quick dip. It has worked. It's worked well, um, but we do not test it okay. on everything. Okay. We use just the, the, the basic compounds or the basic products. Um, love to do more on it. You know, we've tested dozens and dozens of species, um, but we've just used the basic. Okay. Basic hydrator, the basic holding from 
Chrysol and from Floralife. Okay. And from a sort of environmental regenerative standpoint, um, do you think Quick Dip, do you know what's in Quick Dip in terms of chemical? Do you think it's harsh on the environment? I, I use it a lot for my woody stuff because a lot of the woody stuff I grow needs Quick Dip to hydrate. And I... Uh, forgive myself for any environmental concerns by assuming that it's not actually going into the environment. We just quit. So for anybody listening who doesn't know what quick dip is, it's a solution that you just literally quickly dip. I think it literally says you're supposed to do it for one second on the bottle. Um, You dip it very quickly in and then take it out and you put it in a bucket of clean, fresh water. So it's not like I'm dumping lots of quick dip out into the world, but are you going to shatter my my, uh, false hope here, John? (laughs) You know, I really don't know exactly what's in it. Okay. Um, I... Know that I have looked at it in the past, but I'm afraid I don't remember okay. what's in it. That's okay. So I'm going to need to, uh, um, yeah. Though the other thing, you know, you talked about the environmental um, solution that has been in a bucket for a week, you know, um, you know, a couple inches of it. I'm not worried about that getting out into the environment. Um, it. The concentration, the concentrated solutions, you know, that's a lot of sugar there. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of, uh, of acidifier and stuff. So I'll handle that carefully. Okay. You know, I would not be, um, yeah. you know, just letting that stuff go hither and yon. Right. Yeah. Hither yeah, and I, yon is a scientific term. Oh, there. is it? Oh, I, just, I, just, I'm uh, going to write that yeah. down right now. <laughs> No, but this, I think, is a really important conversation, which is ironic. I didn't think to ask you about this officially before we came on today, but it is <laughs> okay. it is a question I get a lot from growers who want to be organic growers, you know, like what is an organic alternative to the solutions that we most um, are, are most often recommended? And then for myself, I've just always been so concerned about pouring anything out on the soil since I don't have a proper, you know, official sewage system or anything to put it in. So it sounds like they're relatively benign when used properly. And, and that gives me some, some relief, I guess is the right word. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the regular post harvest solutions. I, not anything I lose sleep over in terms of okay. how to handle. Uh, yeah, the, we have tried a number of the, we have tried the, for a while there, there were some organic solutions out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they either didn't work or in one case they were actually worse. Oh no. <laughs> I know. We were so disappointed. Oh. Um, the homemade solutions, the homemade organic ones, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part were either didn't work or made things worse. Mm. Um, I have to say I've had a, a couple of my grads, uh, Al, uh, Lane Greer, Lane Greer, yeah. she did some yeah. this way back when, and then one of my other students, Iftikhar, did some. And really the home solution, which is not organic, uh, that worked most consistently was, I'm afraid, Sprite or 7-Up or Lemon Lime Soda 50-50 with water. Uh. Um, we tried the lemon juice. We tried the, you know, the Clorox bleach and all these sorts of things. And occasionally one would do okay yeah. for one particular species. Uh, but there were none that were consistently good. So that old school like garden club like uh, advice to put soda in your uh, in your vase is actually kind of works, but not uh, not the professional way to approach things. 
Well, 50-50, soda with water. That's a lot, or, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. The fact is the flower foods are going to be more cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's why we don't go running around saying that. But, you know, um, for the for the homeowner, people love to have, uh, you know, they often don't have the packets and they love to yeah. know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. We've um, we've tried a lot of those alternatives. And like I said, in with certain flowers, this one will do good and other flowers, this one will do OK. But none of them were consistent. Yeah. And I think it it bears pointing out here that you can't assume all flowers are exactly the same and how you handle them after you harvest them. So that's what we call post-harvest for everybody who's listening and doesn't know what we mean. Post-harvest is what do you do with it after you cut it? And then it's important to actually have the research behind it, which you and your colleagues have done um, so effectively. And you wrote a book. So for anybody who doesn't know, and I'll link to it in the show notes, there's an entire uh, tomb of uh, post-harvest research and advice from John and his his, um, his colleagues. So that that's a very valuable uh, reference reference uh, book to have. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That book was a lot of fun. We did it through the ASCFG um, with uh, Judy being the editor on it, uh, Allison Carlson being one of the co-authors, Lane Iftikar, um, and uh, um, oh, oh, he's going to kill me. I'm blanking on <laughs> That's why I don't have my copy right here. I feel bad. I would have read out everybody's name, but I I seem to be missing my own copy. <laughs> Bob Stamps. Uh, Bob, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I blanked <laughs> on your name. For me. Um, he did a lot of the work with uh, Greens uh-huh. in Florida. Okay. And so, and he was just a very good eye for detail. So mm-hmm. uh, it was a good project. Um, and it's, um, I understand from ASCFG, it continues to sell well. So yeah. it's been good. Yeah, it's been it's such good a good book. going to jump to the, the the reason I did ask you to come on to the podcast was to talk about peony peony uh post harvest and storage because this this show is going to air um in February or whatever and so it's not peony season obviously but I like to set people up for success in the coming season and so sure. I figure by talking about this in the winter that means when peony season comes full cert full full force <laughs> Um, everybody will have their strategy in place and be ready to go. So I thought, yeah, who else to ask more about how to, um, what's the best practices at harvesting and after harvesting and how to store these peonies because they're special magical unicorns for anybody listening who doesn't know this about peonies. (laughs) Uh, You can dry store them out of water for weeks and months at a time, which John's going to tell us exactly how long. And um, it's just a fantastic way as a grower to stretch out your harvest of this very valuable focal flower that is usually only actually blooming for one or two weeks a year, but you can Actually, if you're really good at what you do, you can sell it over the course of a month or two, um, which for my farm has proven to be 
an incredibly um, vital way for me to do business because of two things. Um, one, I'm a small farm and I can't really have plants taking up a lot of space that aren't valuable. So I needed a high value crop. But then I do event work and I can't have that high value crop all come at once and then not have it for the rest of the season. So peonies have been the backbone, basically. I'm able to, I say bank my peonies is the way I talk about them. I'm able to bank my peonies. I say that about tulips too. I'm be I literally have a vault. <laughs> I have a vault in my barn, which is a cooler that is just for dry storage. And oh, wow. when I bank them in there, either tulips or peonies, I'm able to like, I have a bank account and I know exactly how many stems I have <laughs> and I can withdraw accordingly. So it's such a, such a cool way for farmers to be more resilient, I guess is the best way to put it. So I wanted to hear all of your research, John, just lay it on us. Tell us about peonies. <laughs> You don't want to hear all of our research. Uh, okay, <laughs> fine. I want to hear the very good summary of your research. <laughs> we, will, we will tell you a summary. Um, I'm just joking. Yeah, well, first of all, let me start by saying that, um, just as you said, peonies handle dry storage well. In fact, they handle dry storage better than most other cut flowers. And in fact, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of what else handles it. I mean, tulips well. are the only other one I know that it's not peonies do better than tulips, but the tulips so are the only other are, one I really consider it an option. So, but that's for me. Yeah. And, and we can actually talk about tulips as well, because that's oh, another good one. It tends to come all at once. And so mm -hmm. you're stuck with it. Yeah, what do yeah, we do? Exactly. Um, so let's start with the fact that when you do store them dry, and if you store them for any length of time, they're going to look pretty awful when you pull them out. <laughs> and you're yes. going to, for the first time person, you're going to think, Oh, I screwed up. Yep. Um, no, recut them, put them in water, and then they will magically rehydrate. It is absolute magic. For the record, it's like it's mind blowing magic the first time you do it. <laughs> it is. It's just so cool. Now, I will say that store. You know, peony doesn't have the longest vase life. Anyway. Fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then dry storing them, you're going to lose the vase life some, but you're still going to get enough for events or for, you know, if you if you let your customers know if they've been stored for a while, okay, these may not last a full week, but boy, they're gonna look great for yeah. you know, a few days. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Um, peonies are prone to botrytis. So that's the other thing is um, when storing them is to make sure they're stored dry. Mm -hmm. So not only dry, but Dry really dry. <laughs> yeah. Really, the foliage needs to be dry, uh, and this sort of thing. In fact, some folks will, and I'd love to hear what what you do. Mm -hmm. Some folks actually will put them out in the on a, the the shelves in the coolers to physically let the if oh. they have to harvest them when they're wet. Oh, I leave mine out in the barn. I I'll just lay them in a single layer on go. a table. Or we have lots of benches too. But then I put a circulating fan on at the same time because, yeah, I've noticed if there's even just a drop of moisture on a leaf, there's a really good chance if it goes into storage with that drop of moisture, there's a really good chance I'm going to pull it out and there's going to be mold on it. So yeah, we we literally fan dry them. <laughs> oh, very good, yeah. very good. Yeah. No. Yep. That's great. Um. So. Uh, that that kind of sets the stage for what stems need to go into storage. And most, uh, they can handle four weeks of storage pretty well. 
Now, the next thing we need to talk about is temperature. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to put you on the spot. What temperature is your cooler? Yeah, in? this is why. I know I love this question because <laughs> I used to try to store them in my main. I've got three coolers at my farm and I used to try to store them in this outdoor cooler that is our harvest. Now, now I call my harvest cooler. And so we were opening and closing that door all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely not a consistent temperature. And the other thing was there was probably a lot of humidity coming and going in and out of that cooler because it was just exposed to the elements. Um, so I used to not be able to store them very long. I, I think I would store them confidently for about two weeks. And that cooler was set, and I use that loosely here, set at like 34 degrees it. or 35. But I know when we were opening and closing the door, it was going up to like 40 or whatever. Um, so then I then moved into, um, I built the barn that I have now and was able to put in a big, beautiful cooler in there. And that was more regulated, but I still, I was like, I know I can do better. And I actually listened <laughs> to a, I guess it was a webinar you and one of your research assistants did through the ASCFG. Nathan, Nathan that's it. It was Nathan. Yeah, Nathan. Um, did about peony storage. This must have been five years ago. I don't know how long ago it was, but you were yeah, talking yeah, about actually freezing them, which we'll talk about then. But I was like, oh, I need to get the temperature. It's cold. Like, I got to get this cold. And so I built this, what I call the closet cooler. And it's just eight by four. It's the size of like your standard home closet, probably. Okay. And um, it's on a cool bot, so it can only get as cold as a cool bot. But I set it at 32 or 33. I'm still afraid to actually freeze them, but I want to talk about that today. <laughs> and so that door does not get opened by anybody but me. And I'm very okay. careful <laughs> about going in and, in and out really fast. So with that, the temperature, this is to answer your question, the temperature stayed much more consistent. So I think it's generally around 33, 34, depending when I'm opening and closing the door and stuff like that. So what's the right temperature? Well, you have just done a perfect job of walking <laughs> people through the, what, what has to go on. The typical cooler is way too warm to store peonies and i will add some of those other uh flowers tulips mm -hmm. dutch iris mm, oh right they, yep they open way too fast and so um if you store them at a i'm going to do a double negative here whatever um or no an oxymoron a warm cooler <laughs> they're not going to last right yeah just not going to last and yep. so you've illustrated that perfectly you know in your regular cooler you were getting about two weeks mm -hmm. um in your 32 to 33, wonderful, you did that perfectly. Yeah. You're probably getting four to six weeks, right? Yeah, so I have successfully used, um, let's see, what did I use? It was uh, Kansas peonies um, okay. in, for a July 4th wedding. Um, I would not have oh, done wow. it for anything else for the record, <laughs> only a wedding, but the, the bride desperately wanted, um, some peonies and it was a 4th of July themed wedding. And, um, that's the longest. So that would have been, they would have bloomed in like mid May, late May, depending, I don't know what it was that year. And then I used them all the way into July. So that was a solid, I'd say it was nine to 10 weeks that I had those. Okay. Very yeah. good. Yeah. It was crazy. Very good. I was impressed with myself. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you did good. Um, yeah. I'm impressed. That That's very good. Now, what I will add to your repertoire, because you've obviously got, you know, this the, the first part of this. Well, um, for the record, it, I have it down because I listened to you. I didn't come up with any of this. I just listened to John Dole. That's what I did, everybody. Listen to John Dole. 
you were too kind. And, um, if you try, you know, if you get another floral cooler, mm-hmm. one that can go just below freezing, then you can get them out to around 16 weeks. Wow. So that's how, okay, yeah. one time at an ASCFG conference, gosh, I don't know how long ago, 10 years ago, somebody came to an October or November conference and had peonies. And they were not like a grower in some crazy climate. That, And they said they had stored them that long. And my mind was blown, like beyond blown. <laughs> they can. Now, when you get them out to that length, mm-hmm. We're not talking um, stick them in a bouquet yeah. kind of thing. This is really for weddings events um, because they will blow open as quick as can be Yeah. Um, because now they've had a lot of cold and they are ready to go. <laughs> um, but um, you can, they will still look nice. The other thing I will, oh, I, I need to modify that a little bit because um, if Nathan ever listens to this, he'll correct <laughs> me. Um, the, the longer you store them, the greater the likelihood of having various floral abnormalities. Mm. And basically what we're saying is the longer you store them, the more likely they won't fully open or they're going to look a little wonky. Okay. Um, The freezing increases the number of flowers that look good when they open. Okay. 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 So that allows you, part of the reason you, uh, folks can't store peonies too long is that they don't open well mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah you know, they just simply don't open or you know um but with the freezing you can get them to 16 weeks and they will open up more reliably i have to try i have to try this i'm like so determined to do this <laughs> so- and the temperature we use we've tried they're actually quite tolerant of well below freezing. Okay. Um, but what we've settled on is 31. 31. All right. I'm putting that 31. on my notepad right now. Right. So, um, oh, okay, go ahead. Sorry. I have questions, but I'll wait. <laughs> I'm going to go over to tulips. Tulips, not only, now we've not taken it as far out as peonies because we simply didn't have the material at the time, yeah. but uh, tulips, the vase life of a frozen tulip with the bulb attached. Okay. Yeah. Tulip <laughs> with the bulb attached. And then you recut it and put it into flower food is as long as a freshly cut tulip. What? Wait, but for how long? For okay. eight weeks. For eight, eight, weeks, weeks? eight weeks. Eight weeks. Okay. So okay. But so now many there's, there's you notice I know. You noticed a couple of things I said there. Um bulb attached. Right. You know, which is a typical storage procedure for tulips, is to leave the bulb on. If you want them to store them, you just pull the whole plant up uh-huh. and leave the bulb on. Now, another caveat there, um, they're going to look a little more wilted when you leave the bulb on. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. The reverse. Um, leaving the bulb on, uh, if, you, if you cut the bulb off, right. they're going to look more wilted. If you leave the bulb on, they're not going to look as wilted. Okay. Um, you can freeze them with the bulb off. Okay. I was going to ask, can you still do it? Yeah. You can still do it, um, but um, they're just going to look more wilted than with the bulb on. But what's the vase life with after, if you didn't leave the, so for the record, I take the bulb off because 
I, I have to store so many tulips and storing it with oh, a bulb yeah. on is just like, it, it's just too much. So I take bulbs off. But um, is the vase life still good if you froze them with the bulb off? Or is it so useful get... to have the bulb that it's worth the extra amount? Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, that does make sense. Um, you're going to lose a little bit on the vase life. Okay. All right. It's about a day, if I remember yeah. correctly. You can make that calculation then. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you're using the eight-week stored tulips um, to uh, uh, for events, then no, yeah. I wouldn't worry. About don't have to worry about but, it. Okay. You know, and I hope folks, more folks, try this um, because I want to hear how this actually works commercially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I know, will. So I will definitely more. be trying this. So, okay. So one thing that I so I have a question about the actual. Um, a space for freezing because I have as yet to get a cooler to the place where I could freeze the cooler, though obviously right. I could install a walk-in freezer if that's needed. But I do, I did purchase a, um, you know, just a, what do we call it? A deep freezer? Just a small little like, you know, Just deep freezer. freezer. Yeah. So can I do it in that? This is the, I, I have had this for a year wanting to freeze peonies in particular. I didn't know about tulips, but I've always hesitated because I don't know how to control the temperature inside of it to be, I guess, 31. I didn't know which temperature exactly to try to put it at. Do you, do, have you had any success with that? How do you guys freeze your, your, we we have uh, we uh, we set the full cooler at it. Okay. Okay. Uh, because we're normally doing big boxes of stuff. Okay. Because uh, when Nathan and then more recently Jen Kalinowski was doing the freezing work, you know they're they're dealing with large volumes of flowers. Okay. Um, but I will tell a little bit of a story. Um, I think some of your listeners probably have heard of Betsy Hit mm -hmm. from Peregrine Farm, awesome. longtime flower grower who has since retired. Um, when I was first working on this idea and I was getting all excited about it and she just let me talk for a bit and then she relayed one time that she had used just what you said a chest freezer yeah to hold flowers just below freezing for an event and it worked for her wow. um so yes um you're gonna have to do some some testing on yeah, it yeah yeah um you know put a thermop you know put one of those min max thermometers mm -hmm. in there mm -hmm. And then um, just see how you do. But yeah, I think a chest freezer would be fine. Okay. Well, then I'm doing it this spring. I'm gonna I'm gonna just take the leap of faith and do it. <laughs> uh, the other one it works on is tulip, or I mentioned tulip, yeah. iris, iris, Dutch iris. Okay. Okay. And now Dutch iris are harder to pull up because the corm um, mm -hmm. has these contractile roots which hold on to the soil, um, but leaving the corm on is does a little better for them as okay. well. Okay. But yeah. So uh, you know, okay. do a little experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave oh. some with the ball on and some off. So I love I'm, I love experiments. <laughs> you don't have to convince me. I should just be one of your research students. <laughs> Make me very happy to do that. But I'm a little entrenched here, so I guess I'm not doing that. But <laughs> I have a question about when you're freezing them, do you just like wrap them the same way you would have wrapped them if you were just doing cold, dry storage. Like, do I need to do anything different to freeze them? It, I, right now I just wrap them in newspaper or whatever paper I randomly have around and stack them in crates. That's all I do. <laughs> That's all we did. Okay. Okay. Just want to check. Uh, we wrap them in newspaper and we put them in floral boxes. Okay. Okay. Um, because then um, 
they can mark on them, you know, mm -hmm. all the treatment stuff and mm -hmm. then we can move the boxes around. And then we would pull out every week, however many stems had to be pulled out that week for okay. whatever. Okay. Um, so there is some, you know, those boxes cut the water loss a little bit. Okay. So we have not done them, just put them in bulk crates for, you know, loose and open in bulk yeah. crates. Um, we have put them in floral boxes. So, so that's the okay. part you need to say, you know, open in a crate, they may dry out more than they did for us and it may impact us. I was just worried about freezer burn too, if they didn't. So the boxes sound more like they would cushion the freeze and, you know, like how something touches the side of a freezer and then it gets freezer burn, even if it, you know, was supposed to freeze. So <laughs> is that yeah, no, there's nothing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in my, for those listening who are just curious about um, my system is that they're the black bulb crates. They stack on top of each other so I can just stack and stack and stack. And then I have um, like dry erase tape on the sides of the crates so I can write on the sides of the crates. And then because, so I used to wrap the bundles in newspaper and then I had these perforated little bags that I got. I don't even know where I got those, but I would put every bundle yeah, in a perforated yeah. bag um, mm -hmm. because I wanted it to have like airflow but not dry out and all this stuff and that worked well but it was a lot of perforated bags so now what i do is i just have a sheet of plastic that i punch some holes in it's just a thin film i don't even know where i got it from i don't know someone anyway and i just literally drape the sheet over the stack of crates so and i can reuse that sheet of plastic every year and um and that seems to work well for me um but I think boxes would be great too. I just don't have that many boxes. <laughs> sure, now that'll work. Yeah. Um, you mentioned perforated plastic, and mm. that is if folks are going to be storing, you know, let's say they're storing three stem bunches of peonies, you know, they can get them all dried, mm -hmm. wrapped in the perforated plastic, and then put in the boxes. Then they can just take them out, recut them, mm. hydrate them, and send them on their way. Uh, so, yeah, perforated plastic is is often used with storing peonies but um yeah your way of doing it's just fine yeah i try to reduce plastic as much as possible but it's yeah. good to know that you could just basically bunch them the way you're going to sell them and then trim off the stems and go a uh, quick point about tulips uh since we are talking about that is if you are dry storing tulips and you're bringing them back out and you're hydrating them in my experience you got to wrap them tight as a bundle and stick them upright. Otherwise, if you just lay the flopped over stems in water, it they never straighten properly. Have you had that experience, John, or you just put the floppy things in and, <laughs> and let it go? <laughs> uh, yes, they will. They will flop over. Um, what's interesting is um, because we're storing them in boxes, we're storing them horizontal. And we're storing them, you know, obviously cold. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also, you know, the control is above freezing. Um, they kind of remember that. Remember, tulips yeah. are geotropic. Yep, yep. So even though it's cold, they they remember that time when they were being pulled horizontal, hmm. and they don't show it right away. But when you then take that horizontal stem, stick it vertical, it will remember that it was bent for a time. And it will then bend. Oh, that's what's happening. Okay. Okay. And then it'll try to straighten back up. Now, it's really kind of, uh, I don't know how many folks bring in Gerber. We have some Gerber production, but Gerbers are very prone to this. If they're, they're shipped horizontal and they're shipped warm, 
you will have an idea of just how warm they were because they will curve and, and then they will start back. straight back up again. <laughs> so that initial curve tells you, oh, they got a little warm. Um, tulips do the same thing. Okay. So they kind of remember that time. The problem is just what you said, they don't quite go all the way back to straight up and down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, be sure to, this is one time where you do want to pack things right. in a bucket really yeah. good. Yeah. That's what I was, I was kind of what I was alluding to, like with peonies, I guess you could just do your sort of retail bunch or whatever it is, and they don't flop like they when don't. they're dry. But with tulips, I just went, didn't want anybody to go out the spring and, and harvest all their tulips in like five stem bunches and then just put them in, in buckets when they're rehydrating them and have them be super wonky. Instead, um, I think it's better to hydrate them before you bunch them to be whatever your sale, sale point is because we just make these giant burritos <laughs> of like 50 stems and a big thing of newspaper and, and hydrate them. I wish I had a visual right now to show everyone. I'll figure out a way to share a visual somewhere, but um, that way they can just hydrate straight up and down so they don't, they don't flop around. But um, yeah you know the finer points of these <laughs> of these things yeah um you look like you have something to say please go <laughs> sure you know you mentioned hydration and that's a question i get on peonies do you hydrate before storage or do you put them in dry oh. um we've looked at that um that is an interesting topic and i've been around growers who've been on either side of it and um we come down on the store dry without hydration. Okay, so, like, that was the only thing I ever knew to do. I didn't know there's people that hydrate them before storing. Some, I didn't even know, you know that. And that maybe that they no longer do it, but I do remember a lively conversation. Um, part of it is I, we just worry about botrytis. Well, I was going to say you get them super wet then before you get them dry. It just seems right. like a lot of I'm always in the cost ratio camp where I'm all <laughs> about best practices. This is why I asked you about the tulip bulb because I'm like, I am all for best practices. But if it's so much more labor to do something and all I'm going to do is get one extra day out of something, I'd rather just do the like efficient way <laughs> of going sure, about it. <laughs> so I have a quick, quick question that I'm sure somebody listening is going to have as well. There's there's always this anxiety when peonies are in bloom. I mean, I certainly have it myself. When peonies are in bloom or tulips are in bloom and we haven't picked them yet, but there's a cold cold front coming through and it's going to be like 30 degrees and everybody freaks the heck out. And there are, everybody's, myself included, sometimes covering things with frost cloth and all this stuff. But you just told us these things are happy to freeze, basically. <laughs> Is there... Can we relieve ourselves of that anxiety in the springtime? What do you think? <laughs> well, actually, one of my former students who works for Ball now, Nathan Jonke, mm -hmm. actually did some freezing of whole plants oh. because we have, uh, you know, North Carolina is a big cut peony producing state mm -hmm. and um, we get some late, late freezes. freezes. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting yeah. them up here, too. Yeah. Uh, he has taken his... Of course, I'm thinking in centigrade because we do all our work in centigrade um, down to minus six for an hour. Um, mm -hmm. You do get bud damage that low. Okay. Um, that would be, oh, golly. I'm doing, that, I'm doing the conversion real quick. <laughs> I know. That's around, um, it's around that's 22, 24. Yeah, let's see. It's, I'm getting 21.2, thanks to the Google. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So 21. Um, you know, that's pretty cold. 
That is and, really cold. Yeah. But um, you, if it's just below freezing, if it's going to get, you know, 29, 30, 31, you're probably going to end up doing more damage with the trying to cover them than you are to keep them warm. Okay. Um, at the at that between three to six minus three to minus six degrees C, which would be like the low, no, the mid twenties, mid twenties, twenties to yeah. low twenties. Yeah. Um, the uh, some of the buds ended up showing damage internally, mm. but we're still able to open up. Uh, we did get photos during one of the big freezes, and we saw quite a bit of damage mm. at at the minus six in the fields in eastern North Carolina. Okay. Uh, the, the the folks um, sent us photos. Um, but warmer than mid-20s, you're probably not going to get a lot of damage. Now, we were not able to test the very youngest buds. Okay. Um, because the plants that we had, that Nathan had at the time, you know, and I'm saying we, and I'm meaning Nathan. Nathan, that's it. That's <laughs> fine. Credit to Nathan. I'll get him on the podcast next. <laughs> that's right. You know, and it's like with the freezing work, I'm saying we, and it was Jen <laughs> and Nathan. Um, but anyway, I digress, as I often do. Um, the plants that he was using at the time just simply didn't have very many, Side very buds. young stage yeah. one okay. at that time. Um, but um, yeah, they, they can tolerate cold. Okay. So yeah, it's do not stress as much as as we do. As, as we are watching. Oh, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm living in North Carolina now, and I've I got my lettuce crop outdoors, and I still cover my lettuce when it gets you know lettuce can take cold. It can. You know, yeah. But, yeah. I know. But we we have so ingrained. it is it is. But we to to in our defense for anxiety, I guess not that I want to defend my anxiety <laughs> for the record. But the there had there was one really harsh freeze. I think it was two or three years ago. Here it came after Mother's Day, and the peonies like some of them were okay, some of them weren't. I still don't know exactly um, at my farm. I still don't know exactly why some. I it might be cultivar specific. I have no idea. But some seem to be okay, and other ones just. Yep, that was it. So, you know. Well, the other thing that adds anxiety to this is, you know, we listen to the weather forecast. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's been times when we've covered everything diligently and mm -hmm. nothing happens. There's been other times when we think, oh, it's not going to be too bad. And then it gets colder it gets than they bad. say. Yeah. So yeah. luckily, though, you know, while I would be very concerned about zinnia seedlings or sunflower seedlings, mm -hmm. you know, if the forecast is saying 30 Mm -hmm. And even if it gets down to 28, the peonies are going to be okay. They're going to be okay. Yeah. And the same for tulips, it sounds like, too. I never really yeah. worry about my tulips, for the record. I don't know. I figured they made it through the winter. They're okay. <laughs> I don't know how, yeah. Like, yeah. if they can't survive that, I don't know what else to do for them. And this is just a little um, pro tip, I guess, for growers out there listening. Um, one of the things I did for myself that was really useful was I got one of those MinMax um, thermometers, mm. outdoor ones. I got the Govee ones. Um, not that I'm not endorsing that brand. <laughs> just happens to be the brand I had. And I've I've hung a couple of those around my field because there are cold pockets in the field and then places that are warm pockets and so forth. And I encourage every grower to kind of map your farm by your zones because 
that forecast is never reliable. For the record, it really never was, but it is definitely not reliable anymore. And so the other night here in Philadelphia, they said the the negative or the low temperature was going to be 19 degrees, I think. Or no, that was the night it was supposed to be 12. And I have these things around my farm and there was one spot at my farm that went to five degrees that night. So like that's a seven degree difference on what they said it was going to be. So I just find it really helpful to have that information to sort of take the head scratching moments out of my system. Yeah, absolutely. We have a little farmette at our house and um, there's one spot. It's it's in a little bit of a it's got some one of our drainage areas has mm. got a little bit of, and it, it won't, it doesn't freeze. Mm. We had some stray tomato plants that kind of got started and we had those well into December Whoa. when everything else was frozen solid, but it's that one spot that stayed yeah. warm, yeah. you know, and, and that's where we put anything yeah. uh, that needs it just a little bit warm. So yeah. for new growers, learning your microclimates can be very useful. Oh, it's huge. That stress. It's huge. And if I had to do it all over again, and I had been smart enough to do this earlier, I would have mapped my field before I put any structures up because yeah, my yeah. coldest spot, guess guess what's in my coldest spot? My hoop house, <laughs> which is like not really helpful. If I had put it up the hill a little bit, <laughs> I probably would have gotten a lot more protection, but it's fine. I didn't know. But if, if there's new, very new growers or growers who are getting new land, um, do that do that temperature mapping if you can before you put any of your houses up because it can make a big difference basically. <laughs> a longer conversation and more dynamic than I expected, but I did want to grab your knowledge real quick on the production of stock and poppies. You said you had some good insight on stock and poppies. Do you want to just give us a quick rundown on those two crops in terms of what your research has yielded over the years? Yeah, poppies. We'll start with poppies. Now, the caveat is we did a lot of our work with temptress, which is Hmm. old-timey um, and I'm not even sure it's still available. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's hummingbird or colibri that are yep. available. Yep, those two are the Probably common. Champagne bubbles. Yep. Um, so my guess is that Tentris is, you know, and I'd be interested to hear from the growers if they, if those who've grown Tentris, if it's similar to hummingbird. Well, uh, Tempest is still an, an Icelandic poppy, correct? It's not the yes. like Oriental or whatever. Okay, just no, double no, checking. No. Yeah, I don't think it I worked. ever grew Tempest. I've always been, um, I am a champagne bubbles girl myself. <laughs> that is an as, as, as Icelandic poppy then. Okay. So yep. yeah, that's, we're all talking the same thing. Um, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous flower. Um, we've... Uh, um, We've done a fair amount of work on it. Now, um, the it, it needs it cool. So this is definitely a cool season mm-hmm, crop. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried it at different temperatures, and we found that we got the best quality at cold, like 40 at the night. But we got more production, and we had a nice balance of good quality and production at 50 okay. to 63 nights. Okay. okay so that helps. Um, we spaced them six by six to nine by nine. 
these plants can get very thick with foliage. Yes, they can. So part of the <laughs> so part of the density will just depend on how good you are at being able to keep them clean of thrips. Or just Light clean. I, I would say in general, I literally clean my beds like through the course of the growing season. Oh, if I'm seeing decaying leaves on there, I make sure to clean them out. I don't just let them, you know, do whatever they want. I do mine at six inch spacing and I'm grooming. I'm grooming those beds regularly, okay. I would say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They are prone to thrips. They're prone to whiteflies, powdery mildew and botrytis can all be issues with this crop. Um, so it's probably not one that I would start with, hmm. you know, if you're a new grower. But boy, when those poppies open, they're spectacular. They're so good. <laughs> um, in terms of post-harvest, uh, well, first of all, let me back up. And I'd be interested to hear your experience on this. We would harvest, uh, you know, a whole bunch of flowers. And no matter what, it seemed like we had a small percentage that just wouldn't open. Mm. I've got and, I've got a tip for that. <laughs> okay, good because we weren't able to figure it out. Um, we we harvest them when they're cracked and mm -hmm. we can see the color. Mm -hmm. um, but no matter what, we always so what we just started telling folks is if you're selling ten stem bunches, put eleven stems in it yeah. or put twelve stems in yeah. it and just don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but the trick here is so you do need that they should just be cracked and you should be able to see the color for everybody listening. That's just the color crack stage. Um, you don't want it wide open because once they're wide open, okay. they have no vase life, basically. So but at the color crack stage, they have excellent vase life. If you're in my experience, um, yeah, we, yeah. we get like eight or nine days out of ours um, easily. But the, the trick that I've just learned over the years and for the record, I can't seem to teach anybody else to do this. So it's like a grower eye of like you've looked at these plants for a long time you know how they act but the trick is the bud will be a little like the ones that we're not opening means that the stem didn't get quite straight enough so i'm looking for a very straight stem right under the bud like right where that okay. bud is okay. if there's Good. any little bit of a like that means i guess they didn't mature enough yet i guess i don't know i think they just haven't gotten their cell division to a spot where they because i i okay. used to struggle with that too and then i started just being like I don't know. Let's see. And um, over the years, I've just honed in on it needs to have this very, very straight neck. Um, but then I try so, to articulate great. that to other people and they always pick the ones that aren't straight enough. So only I <laughs> pick the poppies for the record. <laughs> yeah. oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And I wish we were still doing the experiment because we would love to test that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do find that they, they respond well to holding preservative. Uh, they give an extra day or two. Um, Base life goes from five to seven days up to, you know, around seven to nine in some mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. uh, we found they could tolerate one week of cold storage. Okay. It's not sub-freezing storage, but one week cold. Um, they, uh, they weren't affected by ethylene. They weren't affected much by water quality. Yeah. Um, commercial hydrator had no effect on them. Yeah. Um, so other than that, they're a fairly low-key flower. Yeah. Uh, they're great. The other I love thing them. Is, I've seen all this stuff about burning and dipping and pouring oh. water and nope. <laughs> yep, same page, same nope. page. Don't do anything to those puppies. Just put them in some water. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the whole burning thing. Don't get it. <laughs> I know, I know. I did see one paper out there that talked about the boiling water apparently, but I, until I've tried it. Um, so keep it simple. This is actually yeah. a fairly simple flower. <laughs> 
Yeah. When you get it grown. And I and I grow gosh, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but I this is one of my primary crops. Um oh, so wow. I grow a lot of them. It's a premium um a premium bloom for me. It's always been a premium bloom for me as a floral designer, but now that I sell a lot more wholesale, like this is a, a crop that you can get, you know, two plus dollars a stem. And if you grow them really well and really tall, um, you can get quite a nice price point for them. And they are, they're just easy in terms of like harvesting is really straightforward once you understand. And um, there's no special handling. I, I just, oh, I don't wow. know. I don't boil anything. I don't burn anything. <laughs> And Thank they, you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and they hold really well in the cooler for a long time before I, I still get good vase life out of them. This again is in a cooler that's around thirty three degrees, so it is about keeping it really cold. But I'm glad you mentioned, re mentioned that. Yeah, again. It, but they they last. I can hold them for like a week and still confidently send them out into the world, um, and know that they're still going to get a week plus vase life. So they're they're bread and butter to me, baby. <laughs> like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do without my poppies. <laughs> so <laughs> I did a, um, a, uh, square footage, uh, assessment of my greenhouse in terms of like the production dollar value and what I could get dollar per square foot. And the two biggest ones for me are poppies and Tweedia. So I, oh, I they will outdo everything else by like yeah. leaps and bounds. So highly, highly yeah. recommend poppies. So, um, but the other one that we wanted to talk about briefly was stock because I had just talked on the last episode with Bryant Mason about tissue testing on stock and everything. And so I thought maybe you could just add to that conversation about sure. how to grow stock well and what are the sort of cultural recommendations for stock? Well, stock is another favorite. Uh, it's another cool crop because we are talking about mm -hmm. cool crops. Yep. Um, so it does well in tunnels. Um, here in North Carolina, we have a hard time with it in the field mm -hmm. because our spring is too short. Uh, we go from cold to hot to cold. Um, but tunnels, it does pretty well. But you know, I've seen just absolutely spectacular stock in so many other mm -hmm. areas of the country. Uh, first, think about the cultivars. You can really, uh, you can separate them into roughly three groups. Uh, one are the old timey ones. These were typically grown in the field in California. Uh, they require a chilling treatment. Mm. Um, so many, and I forget the amount, uh, so many hours below 41 degrees or 55 degrees, I forget the temperature, hmm. but they needed an actual chilling temperature. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. To be able to go ahead and flower. So uh, they're they like a biannual, essentially? Like, do you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't ever consider them biannual, but that makes sense. <laughs> and they were very tall, uh, very just really gorgeous cut flowers. Um, then the, the breeders uh, started working on them more and more, and they came up with what we call low chill cultivars. Uh, these are cultivars that as long as you're growing them cool, uh, they will go ahead and flower hmm. pretty nicely. If you grow them warm, they may or may not, but nevertheless. Yeah. So they just they just need to be grown cool. Not They don't need a quote-unquote cold temperature. Okay. So normal production of 50 to 60 degrees night will do just fine. Okay. Okay, so we call these the low tills. Uh, and there's a number of series there um, that have a just a beautiful broad range of colors. Mm -hmm. Now, with those two groups, you can divide, you can, they are all uh, what we call selectables, mm, which right. meaning that, um, that when you grow them from seed 
and you sow the seed out uh, with just percentage, it's going to be 60, 65% um, uh, the doubles, doubles yeah, versus and, and the rest are singles. Yeah. yeah, more around, anyway, it can be 50-50 at times. You know, and the singles are smaller flowers, they're fragrant, mm -hmm. so people still use them. They just tuck them into bouquets, have mm -hmm. a little fragrance, um, but most of us want want the doubles. For now, the record, are... for the record, I love the singles too. I'm just gonna I'm gonna put it out to the world. There's nothing wrong with the singles. I don't I don't uh, weed mine out in any way. I just let them do their thing. They are they are lovely little accent in a in particular like a bridal bouquet or something because they're not visually heavy. You can kind of they have this more wispy wildflower vibe going on, and they do have that sweet heady fragrance. So it's nice to be able to put it in without having that blob i love i love all stock <laughs> but that sometimes that like big blob is just too much <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and you know some of them have a little bit of that blue gray silvery green mm -hmm. you know it, just, it really lends itself it's gorgeous nice. it's gorgeous yeah uh there are some um mostly double uh cultivars as well like the cheerfuls uh very limited color range it's going to mm -hmm. be white to what they say is yellow but it's more a strong cream yeah um, so you're not going to get those beautiful pinks and blues mm -hmm. uh those are in the uh, but nevertheless so those are the three groups um and you know if you want to start with the simplest they would probably be uh the ones like cheerful mid cheerful yeah. and there's a couple of other series yeah. yeah that are mostly double and low chill and then you can move on into the other ones I love iron uh, for the record. Iron is my oh, favorite yeah, series because the stems are just so darn good. And then they, I, I found iron is mostly double for me. I'd say it's okay. a pretty okay. high, I'd say it's probably 60 to 70% double oh, so far. Okay. Uh, I'm buying in plugs though. So for the record, I don't know, maybe uh, I get them from Grow maybe and Sell. So maybe here. they're doing yeah. something that I don't know about. <laughs> yeah. For folks doing their own seed with the selectable types, there is a whole process for cooling them down and then pulling out the ones that are singles. But, you know, if you have a mix, you know, if you have an operation where you can use the singles, then yeah. obviously that keeps it very, very simple. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think I'd recommend pulling out the singles unless you are a fully wholesale operation in which case i think florists still aren't necessarily gonna pony up for <laughs> for um the singles on a regular basis uh but yeah. otherwise if you're doing any sort of retail sales i think the singles are totally fine um i would personally not spend the time rooting out those singles myself for sure yeah i love them too i love the fragrance mm -hmm. um, i always have mm -hmm. um stock is one of those in terms of post-harvest where you will find out just how good you are at taking care of your buckets <laughs> because that that sweet fragrance turns very sulfur <sighs> yeah and buckets that are not clean um and so just uh keep that in mind yeah and i this is where i really highly highly recommend the cvbn tablet the chlorine tablet um and then also if i'm trying to hold stock at all i don't pack the buckets full i i make sure there's plenty of airflow mm -hmm. between them and i change the water like every three days because it's just it's i, I always tell people it's broccoli this this stuff's broccoli yeah. and if you yeah. leave broccoli in water at all it's just gonna start stinking and decaying really fast so you have to be very aware of stock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we did our stock in crates. 
because mm. they're a fairly quick crop. Mm. Um, so and experimentally, we were doing them in greenhouses. Um, so we needed to turn, you know, we have our issues too. You know, growers mm -hmm. need to turn your space. We did too, because as soon as one experiment's done, it's got to get out huh. so we can get the next experiment in. Um, so, you know, bulb crates work very well if somebody wants to think about it. Interesting, because you could pack a lot into a bulb crate. I never thought to lot. do it. Oh, oh, yeah, we just loved them. Uh, wow. You have to make sure to give some support. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you grow them cold, then the stems will be nice and strong. If you grow them on the warmer edge of the range, like in the 60s, mm -hmm or, you know, like 60 night temperature, uh, they're, they grow taller, but they're a little bit softer. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have the good support there mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were getting them done in about 10 to 12 weeks okay. from the transplants. Nice. So that's a fairly quick That's problem. fast. Yeah. And what yeah. was your spacing, particularly in the crates? Because I do a lot of three, you know, minor at three inch spacing in, in ground, but I don't know. Can, what's your spacing in crates? Do you remember? Golly, you know, that's a good question. Three by three sounds about right. Okay, yeah. And it wasn't any more than that. And I don't yeah. think it was much tighter. Okay. But I have to go back and look. I haven't okay. thought about it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm just thinking of how many you could get a lot of plants in a crate. That that could be yep. really useful. Yep. Fascinating. I love it. Um, yep, sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, nope, nope, go for it. <laughs> uh, they handle dry storage, cold dry storage very well. And again. They do. Like I've you. never dry stored them, really. Yeah, no, it should be fine. Ah. Um, but again, I will pick up on your comment. A cold cooler is better mm. than a warm cooler by far. <laughs> so wait, can you get can you get longer holding by storing them dry, essentially? I mean, I guess that sidesteps that whole like gross slimy stem situation if it's not in water. We did the wet versus dry. And in our experiments, and you hear me say this a lot, I'm always I try to be careful when we're just doing, yeah. you know, that set of experiments. Yes, dry storage okay. lasted longer than wet storage. Okay. Well, it's still, it's still, it makes makes me realize I should be experimenting with that. I'll find out for my own context, but I didn't even know I could do that. So, I'm gonna make a note. Yeah. <laughs> I would try them dry. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Wait. So, can you do a a, a comprehensive list of all the flowers you think can be dry stored, like that you've successfully. Oh, okay, maybe not a you comprehensive know, we, list, but like I, I never thought about stock. So what else have I not thought to dry store? I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to think through because I've uh, we, you know, when I mentioned at the very be at the very beginning, when I mentioned yeah. at the beginning for some of the species we do a comprehensive study on. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things we test. Okay, is one, two, and three week storage at. Uh, either dry in boxes or wet in buckets. Wow. And so that's because, you know, the the wholesalers want to know the dry part. Yeah, true. Uh, true. Retailer, you know, farmer's market folks are just generally putting them mm -hmm. in buckets anyway. Mm -hmm. And so they tend not to store much stuff dry. And so mm -hmm. they want to know the wet. Right. So, you know, we're trying to, to cover all the right. questions there. Yeah. But yeah, um, in this case, dry did better than wet. Okay. And, and for, sugar helped on this one as well. Sugar okay. is a good thing. 
Okay. All right. And for anybody listening who's scratching your head, wondering why you would want to dry store anything, um, if you're not a shipper, you know, some wholesaler shipping stuff around, I, I will just explain my own logic in this capacity is I can store so many more stems dry than I can right. wet. So if there's something I can store dry that will just be as good a quality later on, I would much rather dry store it and stack it because there's only so many buckets you can fit in a cooler. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the logic there. <laughs> so, um, so for the record, for for people listening who haven't tried uh, stock or poppies, both of these are cool weather crops. Um, they're not necessarily for the beginner grower. And in my experience, having tried both of them outdoors, I only had success with them in a tunnel because like you, John, we get too warm here, too fat. Like they needed to grow over the winter. So both of those crops I plant in October or November and they grow all winter long, um, not in a heated tunnel. It's just a regular old tunnel and they bloom in, let's see, April. Uh, well, I actually have poppies blooming right now, which is weird, but uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, because we had such a mild winter, but um, so just didn't want anybody to go out there and buy a ton of these plants without the proper infrastructure to to do it well so <laughs> yeah um, I have seen um, a fair amount of outdoor stock and but it depends on the, mm. the region where you're doing it yeah like I mentioned earlier it we're not in that region yeah um, so it um, um, yeah it for the cut trials we always put them out mm -hmm. and they always not always um, they often don't look particularly good. Yeah. Um, so tunnel, tunnel is really nice on stock. For even if you were in a region where it would be successful outside, so let's say California, I'm assuming it's successful in California. I don't know. Do is it like Lysianthus, where if it gets hit by a lot of rain, stock? I'm talking. Well, both of them actually. I'm talking about. So if they get hit by a lot of rain as the blooms are developing and before they're harvested. I would assume that damages them a lot. Do you know if growing them in the field is tricky in that capacity? I uh, the bloom quality has not been bad for us okay. here. Okay. Um, and so no, I my experience is no. Okay. The blooms handle the rain just fine. Oh, that's good to um, know. Be interesting to hear from your listeners. Yeah. Their experiences. Um, yeah, it's been more the quality of the stem. Okay. Okay. Yeah, when I grew them in the field, they were just short. They they never got very tall or, you know, it just right, wasn't right. a sellable. It was fine when I was doing like bud vases, but <laughs> not, not really sellable otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah. One, a couple of other things is uh, transplant when young. Mm -hmm. They uh, they don't they, they don't like to get root bound. Yeah. So we there's a term for this. And I think the folks at Michigan State actually came up with it. As soon as they reach um, PPS, pullable plug stage. Ah, I like so that. As soon as the root ball holds together, get them out. Get them in the ground. Okay. Um, the other thing is the cut stage for a lot of spike like flowers, we generally mm -hmm. say one third. Stock, uh, generally a little more open is good. Okay. What do you cut them at? You yeah, I'd say them. three, three, two, like two thirds, three quarters. Two -thirds, you know, yeah, it depends on what the sale, like where it's going. But yeah, yeah. Because okay. I find I personally don't feel like they open up that much more. Like they do, but not really. And I understand you need to heart. You can't. You can't let them fully open because the stuff on the bottom starts getting slimy and and dying. But 
But also, I don't ever see those tips really open up a whole heck of a lot after I cut them. The tips won't, but if you, and I'm going to bring the flower fruit back mm. in, but if you do use some sugar, you will get a few more buds to open okay. up. Okay. And those buds will, if you're getting like the dark purples or the dark rosies, rosy red ones, mm -hmm. uh, the color will be a little darker. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, there's a number of flowers, Campanula, Lysianthus, sugar mm -hmm. helps buds, the dark buds show more color when they open up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I don't use the sugar. So that would explain, like, I often have a hard time getting Lysianthus to open up nicely after it's like, you know, so there you go. There is a reason to use all these flower foods, people. <laughs> Oh, this is the way I learned. I mean, it's funny how much I know about flower food, and yet I, I don't know. There, yet there's so much to learn. I guess that's the point. Oh, there is. <laughs> You'll never know that's it all. That's what makes our job so much fun. Yeah, exactly. It's it's what I, yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever get bored flower farming. I, I just don't think it's possible. So, um, oh, gosh, I, I don't want to keep you because this has been a long conversation, and you've been so generous. I just want to pick your brain really quick talking about learning things. Um are there any up and coming flower varieties or something so you you have such a you're, you're you've got your finger on the pulse of the entire industry so is there something we all should know about a little insider scoop <laughs> you know uh coming out of the trials the ASCFG trials um the sorghums that were in mm. the trials were um pretty impressive yeah for not everybody and I, I need to put a caveat on that because they didn't work for everybody. But for those that did, um, one, they were much shorter than the typical sorghums. And so in our trials, um, they were anywhere from three to about five feet tall at okay. most. And they were okay. stocky. Okay. Stocky, stocky. They didn't, you know, I've done sorghum before. And it flops. And it's always lodges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this stuff, not a nary a stem wow. fell over. Um, so. And the colors they had, this is the part that where I've in the trial results, uh, some folks didn't get a clean separation between, you know, they grew all the colors, but they didn't see that much difference. But several of the growers sent in photos of just these gorgeous sorghums, hmm. you know, with um, anywhere from a, you know, orange, a dark orangey red, um, a, a green, a pale white, you know, just gorgeous. Uh, for those that are ASCFG members, you're going to see some of the photos in the cut trial article that's coming out. Okay. Um, so yeah, this one could be, you know, because I can remember when Amazon Dianthus came out, mm -hmm. you know, it pretty much, you know, it created its own category. Oh, it definitely did. Um, yeah. And I think this could do that for sorghums. Oh, that's cool. You know, or fresh and dried. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the most notable one. Okay. Uh, we did have some Tweedias in there, and I, you mentioned Tweedia. I love me some Tweedia. <laughs> the bridal white, the Victoria blue, the mm -hmm. Diana pink. Mm -hmm. There's lots of substance. It's not a flower for everybody. Yeah, it's not. You got to have the right growing conditions. I've grown it for years, and I I would not have said it's one of my favorite plants until this until I got a really nice greenhouse where I can really control the temperature yeah. over the summertime. So that. 
Yeah, it's not a, I don't, I wouldn't consider it a good field crop personally. I mean, as much as I tried growing it and did grow it, I mean, it grew it successfully for the record, but it never got more than I'd say eight inches tall in the field. And now I'm getting, you know, two feet tall stems and they're just cranking nonstop. So it makes, it makes different culturally. Yeah. We did it in the field and we got, we got about 12 to 18. Um, but the one thing I noticed, and you had, you, it meant you were wondering about this earlier, um, the spotting. We did see mm, spotting. Yeah. On the rose and the blue. Um, but it's got that lovely foliage. Yeah. Um, it does need support. It's a very weak stem. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think some of the early literature calls it a bit of a vine. It's not a vine in that sense. <laughs> no, but definitely not. <laughs> not a really big stem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it needs good, you yeah. know, that needs setting. The, the, the primary reason to grow Tweedia for those listening is that there's very few blue, small filler flowers in summertime. Like you can get like nigella in the spring or actually nigella is the only thing coming to mind. <laughs> But there's not a lot of little just touches of blue, which right. is what every wedding florist wants is just touches of blue because it's right. something borrowed, something blue, yada, yada, yada. Uh, <laughs> and so it's a great specialty stem just to fill that niche um, because there's always a demand for blue. But for everybody listening, if you do decide to grow a Tweedia, John, I'm curious about the post-harvest. For me, it, 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 well, not for me, for everybody, it leaks a sap. It's in the euphorbia family. So it's uh, oozy, we'll say. And <laughs> that is when I boil the stems and find that is absolutely critical to the holding of the Tweedia after harvest. Do you guys boil the stems? Mm -hmm. We have not actually done post-harvest okay. testing on okay. Um We've, it, um, it did well this year, but we didn't, or last year, but it, we didn't do post-harvest okay. testing. Okay. Um, what we do for most of the Uzi stuff and is we, we cut them into water, let the sap ooze out, and then mm -hmm. just move the stems to fresh water. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've tested poinsettias. We've tested the other euphorbia snow in the mountains. Um, oh, there's one other sappy one or mm. and all of them we we found that that was the best no boiling hmm. no okay just let them ooze that latex out into one batch of water yeah then move the stems into a fresh batch without recutting uh-huh and that's all that's all we do interesting i was i was still having some floppage so <laughs> that's why i would try i, I would try just getting them out of that Sappy yeah, water, yeah. Okay. putting them in fresh water after it. an hour or two, okay. and okay. see if that makes things easier. Okay, you know, if if that yeah, if that does it without yeah. them being. If I if I can skip the boiling, I'm all for it because that's an added <laughs> labor step. So happy to knock that one out of the list. So. <laughs> Well, and it may be that Tweety is one of those that needs it. So yeah. Well, well I'll do some. I'll I'll do some more testing this season and see what you know, I'll report back. I'll do a, a citizen science over here. <laughs> there we go. Very good. Very good. Oh man, this is this has been a really fun chat, and there's so much information in it. I can't wait for everybody to just sort of tease it apart. I think this is going to be an episode everybody needs to listen to a couple times because there's different little bits throughout, um, and it's just proof how much knowledge you have in your head John. Oh, you're <laughs> very kind thank you no no it's phenomenal <laughs> thank you for all that you do for the industry and thank you for sharing so generously today i feel really um fortunate to have had your leadership over the years so thanks for doing everything you do <laughs> well thank you i've absolutely loved it and uh 
Um, yes, you are. You're very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have you back and we'll do more teasing a part of all the I think what's uh, not to carry on forever, but I think what's cool about the work that you do and then the work that I get to do along with lots of other growers is that we can have that intersect between research right. and real life in the field. Um, you know, it. it it can only go so far in the lab and then to have it go into the field. And then right. when you bring that conversation back and we're all talking together about these finer points, there, there's a lot of um, like incredibly uh, transformative information that can come out of that, where you can just absolutely help the bottom line of a farm, essentially, is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, with our research, we can only do... You know, we can only test so many things. Mm -hmm. And so we can, we then put it out, you know, into, and then, you know, if 50 growers are going to try it 50 different ways, yeah. that's just so powerful. Yeah. You know, some sometimes some of the research doesn't hold up yeah. when it gets out there. And sometimes it does because so many folks are then trying it so many different ways. Yeah. And that's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's all about context. I mean, that's one of the themes of this podcast is that nothing works exactly the same for every single person. <laughs> I mean, as we talked about the water you put in your buckets <laughs> is like, you know, a huge variable and everybody's water is different. So, <laughs> so, but there's so many things we can apply from this conversation. And I just thank you so much for all of it, John. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.